0: Take our Bibles, please, and turn to Romans 14. Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together around this, your word. We thank you for this precious book. We thank you, Father God, that in its pages are contained those truths, Father God, that you saw fit to share with us. And Lord, as we look into your word this morning, may we glean from it the truth that you would have us to understand. Lord, minister to our hearts' needs. And may each of us, Father God, get something out of your word today that will be a blessing to us, be encouraged to us, be a challenge to us. Lord, that as we leave, we would be able to rejoice in the knowledge that we've been together around your word, and that you've ministered to us through it. Give me wisdom, I pray today, as I seek to share your truth, may I bring glory to your name by it, and use me for your glory. Bless our time now in your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I know it's been a long time since we've been in Romans, but hopefully those who have been here, you've vaguely remember something of it, but uh, Romans chapter 14 we're given a, an admonition, given two admonitions with regards to our relationship as believers with each other if Romans chapter 14 were to end with the first admonition which ends as a 13a, there would, uh, uh, we would uh, think that uh, uh, maybe you and I had little to do with each other In fact, the first admonition is that we are to receive one another and not dictate to each other what they should be doing in doubtful things. When you and I read those first 13 verses, we might get the impression that as Christians we're to leave one another alone, that you and I are not to have any concern for each other. After all, the Sunday Sabbath keepers and the non-Sabbath keepers, the meat eaters and the non-meat eaters, will have to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat and give answer to God for their actions. And therefore we should let him judge, as verses 10 through 12 tell us it says, Why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at nought thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us, shall give account of himself to God. Let us not, therefore, judge one another any more. We're not to judge each other. We're not to judge other believers. We're not to be judges ourselves. We're to leave that to the Lord. We're admonished here in Romans chapter 14. So according to the first admonition, despising and judging are out. And as Romans 14, 13a says, let us not therefore judge one another anymore. So the question then arises this are we to leave each other alone, as this first admonition seems to suggest, or is there more to it? Well, the answer is that we're not supposed to leave each other alone. There is more to it. For the second admonition of Romans chapter 14, verses 13b to 23, tells you and I as believers that not only are we to uh, leave each other alone when it comes to these non-essential matters, these non-scriptural things the second thing it tells us is we're to edify one another. Paul in essence says to you and I love one another for if we would then we would seek to edify each other and build each other in the faith. It's true it's none of our business what others do in the non-essential areas we're not to sit in judgment over people who do things that we could not do or don't do things that we could do just because of who they are. If it's not scriptural, if it's not a scriptural command, then it's a non-essential, then you and I are not supposed to judge. But whatever we do, we must be aware of the effects it has on others. We saw last time that on matters of conscience, if there is no direct scriptural imperatives... Or there is disagreement, then what we're to do is we're to receive the weak and we're to respect the convictions of others. And then we're reminded that the Lord is the judge. But that's not the end of the matter. There's more to know before we can respond correctly in these matters of conscience. And so the next thing the Apostle Paul here in Romans 14 tells us to do is to revise our behavior revise our behavior look at 14:13b it says 13 says let us not judge let us not therefore judge one another any more but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way now this command is addressed to the strong in faith not to the weak in faith the strong in faith in fact the remainder of this chapter the first 3 verses of chapter 15 are directed at the strong believer, at the strong in faith. And so everything we're about to read and everything that goes on in chapter 15 verses 1 through 3 is all about those who are strong in faith, those who can do certain things that other believers can't do in these non-essential areas because of their faith. They have strong in faith. They can do these things. And according to Romans 14 verse 13b, Our overriding concern in the matters of conscience needs to be how will our actions affect the weaker brother or sister? In other words, we need to ask ourselves the question, will what we do cause our brother to stumble? Will what we do make another fall? Will our actions have a knock-on effect to the weaker believer, causing them to struggle spiritually or even to fall spiritually because of our behavior. The onus is on the strong. And the onus is on the strong to revise his or her behavior in order to protect the weak. As it says there in verse 13, we're not to put a stumbling block Before them, we're not to put an obstacle in the way which causes them to trip up and fall. You and I are not to cause the brother to fall. It says. It seems like he's repeating himself. We're not to put a stumbling block or or an occasion to fall. If you put a stumbling block, somebody will fall. But he uses these two terms for emphasis. Stumbling block and occasion to fall. He wants to emphasize the fact of what our responsibility is to each other, that we need to make sure we put nothing in the way of another believer which will cause them to struggle spiritually. The expression occasion to fall is interesting because the Greek word occasion to fall is scandalon, from which we get the English word scandal. And the word literally means a trap or a snare which is used to catch animals. One commentator explained it this way. With the animal trap, a piece of material was placed on the trap to conceal it. And when the animal put its foot on it, immediately the trap sprang and the animal was caught. And that's the idea implicit in this word occasion to fall. It has the idea of occasion to be trapped an occasion to be ensnared. This weaker brother is struggling spiritually and something that we do causes them to be ensnared, causes them to be trapped, causes them to struggle spiritually or to even fall by the wayside spiritually because of our actions. We're not to do anything that will cause others to be ensnared. Mike Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on Romans 14 said this, Paul is saying that we must not merely consider ourselves and our opinions, but before we make any statement and before we act upon what we believe, we must bear in mind the effect that our words and actions may have upon others. And these others we must remember are our brethren. They're as Christian as we are. Paul has already made that perfectly plain and clear in in the third verse where he says, God hath received him. And he repeats it still more strongly in verse 9 by saying that Christ died for these people. So when we're considering others, the word of God calls upon you and I, calls upon the strong, if you like, to revise our behavior toward those who are weak so we don't cause them to struggle in the faith. In fact, we are given clear statement of how we're to revise our behavior down in verse 21. He says this, "It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine or anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Here's the principle. It's good that we would give up these things. If what we're doing causes a brother to stumble, it's good for us to give up those things. And we'll look at verse 21. On another occasion, but it's clear that as believers, we need to revise our behaviour. If we do, if what we're doing will cause another believer to stumble, if it will cause another believer to fall, if it causes another believer to be ensnared or entrapped, we need to revise our behaviour. And secondly, in this passage, we are not only to revise our behaviour, but we respond to others weaknesses we respond to others weaknesses in verses 14 to 21 now we're not going to get down to verse 21 we're only going to get to verse 15 but we would respond to other people's responses uh, and our response to the weakness of others is important you see our behavior can have a ne- negative impact upon them you and I may well have analyzed what we're doing and realized that what we're doing there's nothing wrong with it there's nothing in and of itself that is wrong. But another believer struggles with that very thing. They cannot participate in the thing that you and I can. They cannot go where you and I can go. And they struggle with that. It causes them to struggle in the faith. We need to be considerate of them. We need to respond to others' weaknesses. Now notice what he says in verse 14. He says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is nothing unclean in itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. He says, I know and I'm persuaded. Paul says, I know and I'm persuaded that these matters of non-essential things, I'm fully persuaded that there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, our English word faith in the Bible comes from the verb to be Persuaded. So what he says here is this, that, that knowledge, is ba- his knowledge, that he can do whatever he, he's doing in these non-essentials, is based on his being persuaded by the Lord Jesus Christ, or by his faith in Christ. Notice he says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus. His faith in the Lord, his knowledge of what it means to be saved, his knowledge of what it means to be sanctified, his knowledge of what it means to be holy as God is holy, his knowledge of all those truths because of who he is, an apostle of Jesus Christ, because of his knowledge, there are certain things that he knows that in and of themselves are not wicked. And there's no reason why as a believer he could not partake in those things because those things do not affect his sanctification, his salvation or his holiness. There's nothing in and of themselves that is wrong. He knows that. He's persuaded of it. Paul's knowledge is that there's nothing unclean of itself. Now, we know that what he's talking about especially here is meat. Because in verse 15 he says, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. So, effectively, he's focusing on this matter of meat. He's convinced that eating meat is not unscriptural. But not everyone had been persuaded, as Paul had. Not everyone had been persuaded that it was okay to eat meat that was offered to idols or eat meat generally because they did not possess the knowledge that Paul did about meats. See, Paul knew there was nothing intrinsically unclean about meat that was not kosher, that wasn't bled properly. He knew there was nothing intrinsically unclean about meats that were that's idols. It's just meat. It's from an animal. It's meat, and God said it was okay to eat meat. So he understood that there was nothing in and of itself to go to the markets and to buy from a gentile meat that was not was not kosher or meat that had maybe been prayed over as being offered to idols. He knew that in that meat there was nothing that could affect him spiritually. It was meat. Eating the meat was not going to change his spiritual being. It was not going to affect his walk with the Lord. It was not going to affect his holiness, his sanctification, nor his salvation. It's meat. And he knew that. He knew that it made no difference to him spiritually. Yet there was nothing that could justify the destruction of a Christian brother over food. That's what he says here. He says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that seemeth anything to be unclean, to him is unclean. The principle that he's saying here is that yes, it may be okay to eat meat, but I'm not going to destroy another believer for the sake of meat. And the principle can apply to all non-essentials it may be perfectly okay for you and i to do something to eat something to participate in something there's nothing intrinsically sinful about that thing that thing in itself cannot affect us spiritually it cannot affect us regarding our sanctification is in of itself it is totally inert it doesn't affect us spiritually but it may well, by you and I participating in it, may well have an adverse effect upon another believer. Paul says, in respect to the weak in faith, to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. In other words, he has not been persuaded like Paul. Therefore, he doesn't know what Paul knows because he's weak in faith. He struggles in this area spiritually. So he says, if the weak in all good conscience believe the meat to be unclean, then he must be true to his conscience. If the weak believer believes that meat is unclean, that he can't eat it. That if he was to eat of that, he would struggle spiritually. He was to partake of the meat that it would have an effect upon him that he wouldn't be able to go to church on Sunday. He wouldn't be able to read his Bible. He wouldn't be able to pray. If that's the impact that eating meat has upon a person, then that person, in all good conscience, should not eat the meat. Why? Because it says at the end of the verse, To him it is unclean. Lord like Jones said this the apostle is saying, that there are some Christians who have really considered this question. They've thought it out as best they can, and they've come to the conclusion that these meats that have been offered to idol, uh, offered in idol temples are unclean. That is their considered opinion. Now says the apostle, All I am saying is that though you who are strong, in your understanding and you know that they are quite wrong, you nevertheless must recognize that this is the conclusion to which they have come. So the emphasis here is this, to those people the food is unclean. And you and I must remember, the apostle is still saying that meat is not unclean. These non-essential things are not unclean. He's still holding that position but what he is now saying to you and I is because a man thinks it is unclean, because that's his opinion, that as far as he's concerned, it is unclean. And so while you and I are not to judge each other in the non-essential areas, and you and I are not to be critical of each other in non-essential areas, as the first admission tells us, you and I need to be aware of the effect that our faith about those things may have upon others. We may be fully persuaded that what I'm doing is not wrong. But if it's having an adverse effect upon somebody else, we need to consider that. Because he thinks it's unclean, then it is unclean. One of the ways we use this illustration to explain, he says, often little children are afraid of the dark and think there is something hiding in the cupboard or under the bed. Of course, their mother knows that the child is safe. But a knowledge alone cannot assure or comfort the child. You can never argue your child into losing fear. When the mother sits at the bedside, talks lovingly to the child, and assures him that everything is secure, then the child can go to sleep without fear. Because knowledge plus love helps the weak person grow strong. Paul is telling us that the governing factor in all of this Is not the fact that the man is mistaken because they are, but that they are brethren. We're to recognize their struggle and not to add to that struggle by our behavior. I quote Martin Lloyd Jones again. He says, This, what is to govern us is the fact that he is a brother. And though we are certain that the man is wrong, we must nevertheless be governed up to a point, at any rate, by his position. In the non-essential areas of spiritual life, in the non-essential areas of life, we are to consider the weaker brother and avoid any adverse impact upon that believer by our behavior. And then in verse 15, he goes on to explain it even more. He applies the principle. He says this, but if thy brother... Be grieved with thy meat. Now walk as thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. He admonishes the strong not to grieve others and not to destroy others. Two strong words. Once again, this statement is directed to the strong. And here what we have is knowledge, Romans 14, 14. I know and am persuaded being set at odds, or set in opposite to charity or agape love. So I have knowledge, I am fully persuaded that what I am doing is not wrong, it does not affect my spirituality, but on the other hand, I am to act in love. These are the two sides of the coin. That was Paul's point to the Corinthians. Go with me, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, as he deals with the same subject here. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered to sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Habit there is not. Sorry, there is not in every man that knowledge. For some, with conscience of the idols, under the this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God. For neither, if we eat, are we be- the better. Neither, if we eat not, are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to the weak, to them that are weak. You see, we're not to be a stumbling block to those that are weak. There's nothing wrong with meat offered to idols. There's nothing wrong with meat, nothing wrong with these non-essentials. But we must always balance that with love, knowledge and love. Pastor Mitchell in his notes said this, Just because we know about meats or days, etc., it is not charitable. It is unloving to exercise that knowledge when it will offend a brother in Christ. If you and I would knowingly do what we do and it offends somebody, then we're wrong. Warren Wearsby said, the strong Christian has spiritual knowledge, but if he does not practice love, his knowledge will hurt the weak Christian. Knowledge must always be balanced by love. When Paul says, destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died, he's using hyperbole. He's using an exaggeration, a figure of speech to exaggerate a truth. And the statements is directed to the strong, encourage them to act in love towards a weaker brother, not to do something against those, not to destroy their faith for the one who Christ died. I love what Pastor Mitchell said here. He said this, if Jesus was willing to give up his life for the sake of that brother, I can certainly give up my steak dinner. You see, the issue is not my personal liberty. That's what Corinthians says. It's walking in love towards one, the one whom Jesus loves and died for. See, I have liberty in Christ. In the non-essentials, I have every right to do whatever I do. I, I can eat meat. I can do this. I can do that. These things do not affect me spiritually they do not affect my relationship with the Lord. I can do this if I'm strong. But a brother or sister over here struggles with them, maybe because they they were, before they got saved, were involved in some things that were bad in what we, we can do now because we never were, and they struggle. with it. They could not be involved in it, for it would affect them spiritually. Therefore, my liberty must always be balanced by love for the weaker brother. For the one who Christ died for. Paul is speaking of the way the strong affects the weak, and because of love, we must seek not to hurt the weak. You know, Romans fourteen fifteen says this would breach would be a breach of the rule of charity, a breach of the rule of brotherly love. Just do it irrespective of the effect it has upon others. One commentator said, True charity or love vaunts not itself over, nor is it puffed up against a weaker brother, nor is it unconcerned for his peace, but bears with his weakness and forbears the use of things grieving him. Love means that you and I have a willingness to do what we can to prevent others from struggling, from stumbling. In Romans 14 and 15 it says, destroy not them with thy meat. And that's to be understood that as the destruction of the brother's peace and comfort. We may know that what we're doing is okay, but knowledge must be balanced by love. Remember 1 Corinthians 8.1 said, now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that all thing, uh, we know that we all have knowledge, knowledge puffed up, but charity edifier." If we want to do well by others, then we need to consider how our behavior, how what we do affects them. And if what we will do affects others negatively, and it will cause them to stumble and fall, then you and I should consider stopping. For instance, I may be able to go somewhere, and there's nothing wrong in and of itself but others were to follow me, and in following and observing, it caused them a problem. Then I, out of love, should stop. I think I've told you in the past. Well, I know I've told you in the past about my former pastor, Roly Smith. He was a Canadian, and he, where he grew up, he grew up near a, a lake in Canada, where every winter they would go uh, ice hockey on the lake, and then he would go to the ice rink and ice hockey. And he got so good at it, he became a referee in ice hockey. He loved it. He loved skating. And when he came to Australia, uh, he lived in a place called Ringwood or near Ringwood. And there was an ice skating rink in Ringwood. And his son, David, was my best friend. And he would take the both of us ice skating. Uh, many weekends, we'd find some time to go ice skating together. Or maybe a weeknight, we'd go out ice skating, he loved to ice skate and I learned to ice skate because of my pastor and I loved ice skating. I haven't been for many years but loved ice skating. But then someone in the church that he was the pastor of struggled with their pastor ice skating because prior to their salvation all they could remember about ice skating was some bad things that went on ice skating rinks some wicked things, evil things. And they couldn't get out of their mind that their past was going to this place that was associated with wickedness. Even though when we were in the ice skating ring, there wasn't many people there. And we never observed anything going on that was untoward. But they struggled with it. And because of their struggle, because he was having an impact upon them, as their pastor, they were struggling, looking at him preaching on Sunday, knowing that he loves ice skating, and the association they had in their mind with ice skating, they struggled. He then gave up ice skating, hung up his skates, literally. And said he would never skate again while ever they were in the church. Now you and I can have an opinion about what we think about the whole situation, but he was acting out Romans 14 here. There was nothing wrong with ice skating. There was nothing wrong with what was going on. He loved it with a passion and it didn't affect him spiritually. If you knew the man and knew his preaching, you knew it had no impact upon him spiritually. But it affected two people within his congregation. and So he gave it up so they would not be adversely affected by his liberty. He was fully persuaded there was nothing wrong with it. But he knew that knowledge had to be balanced by love, and so he gave it up. And we should always ask, the, ask in questionable areas, is it harmful in itself? And if it's not, will it lead others into trouble. In Romans fourteen fourteen, the apostles made it clear that no food, no day, or people are unclean. Peter learnt that, didn't he? In Acts chapter ten, where the Lord brought down that sheep with all manner of animals in it, and he said, "Arise and eat." And Peter said, "No, so Lord, because since the day I was a child, I've not eaten these things." And the Lord says, "Don't call that which is unclean, which I have called clean." So the issue is not how something affects me, but how does that issue, how does it affect my brother or sister in Christ? That is what we should aim for in these matters of conscience. As Paul said in Acts 24, 16, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offence toward God and toward men. When we revise our behaviour to respond to others' weaknesses, You and I won't eat meat when it will offend. And we won't abuse the day when we might be judged. As one commentator said, that is a service to God and it promotes righteousness, peace, and joy. As believers, we must be careful what we do in the non-essential areas to make sure that we don't cause a brother to stumble, that we don't cause them to fall. We must do all we can to help them to grow, help them to be built up in the faith so that they too can have the strength to do these things to the glory of God. As Hebrews 10.24 says, let us consider one another, provoke unto love and to good works. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you for this admonition, Father God, in your word. We thank you, Father, that it's true that we're not to judge each other in the non-essentials. We are to not criticize others. By the same token, we are to be considerate of others, to edify one another, to build each other up in the faith, to consider what we're doing, how it will affect others. And then in love, change, revise our behavior if necessary in order to respond to the weakness of others. We commend your word to our hearts this morning, we pray. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.